Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, December 5th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, impeachment hearings continue in the House Judiciary Committee. We hear from Mississippi delegates on both sides of the aisle. Also, a federal appeals court is deciding whether felons in Mississippi should have the right to vote. Plus, a new book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The impeachment proceedings are moving closer to Senate action as the House Judiciary Committee considers articles of impeachment. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith is part of the congressional body that will be responsible for voting on the president's removal from office if articles are presented. The Republican lawmaker talks with MPB's Michael Guidry about what she has observed throughout the hearings. Extremely obvious to me that there was nothing I mean, it wasn't a there, there. It wasn't, uh, you know, anyone that had talked one-on-one with the president. And uh, it was just very obvious that uh, you could size this up for what it was, and that is just trying to unseat the president and uh, almost like just false hearings. So nothing that came out through any of the intelligence testimonies uh, in November last month, none of the, nothing there, brought any cause for concern for you? It just confirmed that there was not a crime committed for me. You can't manufacture something that's not there. It's just really all about trying to unseat the president, trying to take this election away. I firmly believe that. And there is nothing that's happened in these hearings that would give any reasonable person any other belief or any other to come to any other conclusion. The argument that Democrats are making is that if anything, this is an egregious abuse of power. Uh, Is there anything in that case that makes you maybe question the president's motives? Absolutely not. In the phone call that they are referring to that I think they never thought the president would actually release the transcript to it. And then he did. But absolutely not. Um, I mean, if you read the transcript, it's just, it's not there. And it has been such an unfair process. I mean, there's been no due process. The uh, president has not had any opportunity to call witnesses, to interview witnesses. The uh, ones that are in there that are pretty much stating the case that you don't have anything, they're being talked over. They've been shouted down. They have no hard evidence. And, uh, 
frankly, the public is, you know, is really getting tired of it, and they have lost a lot of public support. Well, you mentioned due process, and you mentioned uh, witnesses. The White House has received requests for documents relating to the activity regarding Ukraine uh, and President Zelensky. Uh, they've requested testimony of firsthand witnesses, such as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, as well as Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Yet the White House has refused. So how, how can you corroborate this with the denial of due process? Of being able to face your accuser, of bringing the so-called whistleblower to the table and uh, being able to have the normal process that any other citizen would be granted. Article 1 of the Constitution, the legislative branch is given power of the purse. Uh, scholars contend that the framers were unanimous in this decision, that the representatives of the people should control public funds. So you are a member of the Senate Appropriations Committee. You are a member of Congress. How do you feel in general about a president, this or any other, uh, regardless of any motive, undermining the power vested in your branch through Article 1? Well, I think if the president, I mean, he is in his full authority if he feels like that there should be any type of investigation of wrongdoing. And any prudent, reasonable appropriator would not want to release that until an investigation is completed or if there were at least appropriate questions asked that, um, you know, you can conclude that there was no need for any further investigation. The president's, um, you know, as the commander-in-chief, to weigh in and to release you know, any foreign aid, that's his prerogative to do that. Did any questions or any um, concerns about Ukrainian corruption come up during the appropriations process? Not to my knowledge. Um, I'm not aware of any that if it did. As a senator, you are a member of the voting body that will determine if the president should be removed from office in the event that the House passes articles of impeachment. Based on your prior statements regarding the impeachment proceedings, I want to give you the opportunity to ensure Mississippians that you can consider the evidence with full discernment. Oh, absolutely. If there were high crimes and misdemeanors committed, bring me that evidence. I mean, any duly elected, prudent, responsible member would want to know what that is. No one is up here that I'm aware of with just blinders on that would not look at the facts. And, I, you know, I welcome that in any situation, whether it's the president or anybody else. But, you know, I have just, they have no evidence of wrongdoing. And I'm willing to listen, but this case is based so far on a phone call that has no explicit impeachable offense at all in it. What issues would you prefer Congress to prioritize over this impeachment? Oh, my goodness. Obviously, the appropriation bills. You know, we here we are operating under continuing resolution, and uh, we definitely need to get to what the people sent me from Mississippi, sent me here to do, is to get those appropriation bills passed, get everything worked out, and so many of it, much of it has, and definitely USMCA, the replacement of NAFTA. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, we appreciate your time. Ah, thank you. Mississippi's lone Democrat in Congress has been following the impeachment hearings closely. Representative Benny Thompson talks with MPB's Michael Guidry about what he's learned from the House intelligence testimony. I'm firmly convinced now more than ever that uh, President Trump should be impeached. 
Information, the Intelligence Committee uh, put together in his report, in my mind, uh, clearly indicated that the president uh, did certain things that uh, would warrant his impeachment. And so uh, this notion that you can uh, conspire with a foreign government against an American citizen uh, is uh, uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back in the ultimate discussion. But uh, I've been around Washington a long time. I've never, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican in the White House, ever heard of uh, a commander-in-chief asking uh, a foreign government to investigate an American citizen. Uh, that's not who we are. Uh, we are a better nation than this, and I'm convinced that uh, the report produced by the Intelligence Com Committee clearly documents uh, the illegal activity done on behalf of, of President Trump. Your Republican colleagues in the House have basically said, hey, look, this is just the president operating outside the beltway when it comes to foreign diplomacy, that, you know, there isn't any evidence of a crime. What is your response to that statement? Well, you know, we are a nation of laws. Uh, if I attempt to rob a bank and get caught, uh, I still get charged. Uh, if President Trump uh, attempts to get someone to investigate and American citizens or hold up uh, foreign aid uh, that's been approved for a country uh, under the guise of getting that country to investigate an American citizen, uh, that's still illegal. House Republicans also claim in the report that they released that there was nothing improper about the president asking questions about Hunter Biden's role with Burisma or Ukraine's attempt to meddle in the 2016 election. Uh, both of these issues have been challenged by reputable, reputable organizations, but I want to ask you, what evidence have you, as a member of the House and as chair of the Homeland Security Committee, what evidence have you received regarding these allegations that allegations that Ukraine attempted to interfere in our 2016 elections? Well, I don't have any information uh, that says the Ukraine government uh, attempted to interfere with the election. I have a lot of information that's been provided me uh, that the Russians did. Uh, the only information I have... Uh, to the contrary, is that the Russians said the Ukrainians did. Uh, and so uh, when I've talked to members of the intelligence community, uh, they've been uh, unanimous in the fact that the Russians, in this instance, are the bad actors. I'll turn a little bit. Um, the USMCA has been waiting for action in the House for over a year now. Has the impeachment effort hindered House Democrats' ability to pass meaningful legislation? Are you able to walk and chew gum at the same time, like Speaker Pelosi famously stated? Well, I think we have consistently put uh, legislation on the table. Uh, and our question is, we've passed over 400 pieces of legislation uh, in the House of Representatives this year. And uh, for the most part, none of that legislation... Uh, has been taken up by the Senate. Uh, the Senate is pretty much referred to now as a legislative graveyard. Uh, uh, Senator McConnell uh, has made no bones about it. 
that passing legislation uh, is not a priority for them. So we can do all we can over here on the House side, uh, but if he fails to take it up on the Senate, that's their fault. Uh, now, with respect uh, to our trade legislation, it's still being negotiated. There are some health, safety, and environmental uh, concerns uh, that I understand uh, that's pretty close agreement on. Once those agreements are met, then from all indications, uh, we will take it up. Uh, but, you know, on, other, on the other hand, we have uh, prescription drug legislation uh, that's still out there. Uh, I'm constantly uh, uh, in contact with constituents who are complaining about the high cost of prescription drugs in the district. Uh, we have a piece of legislation uh, in the House that will address it, as well as a lot of other pieces of legislation. But again, uh, impeachment has taken up an inordinate amount of time. But you know, the framers of the Constitution put this process in place that when a commander-in-chief goes outside the bounds, uh, bounds of legality, uh, we have to go through this process. It's not one that uh, we relish uh, as Democrats, but it's also one that we will not uh, walk away from because of being controversial. Congressman Benny Thompson represents Mississippi's 2nd District in the House of Representatives. Coming up, a federal appeals court is deciding whether felons in Mississippi should have the right to vote. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For that drive you've got coming up for the holidays, listen to MPB all around the state of Mississippi. Going out of state? The MPB Public Media app will keep you connected to home. For that flight in your future, download podcasts of MPB local shows and listen anytime, anywhere. MPB Think Radio. Spend the holidays with us. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A group of six felons is pushing to have their right to vote in Mississippi restored. A federal appeals court will decide whether it's constitutional for Mississippi to limit voting rights of felons after their sentence is complete. These limits disproportionately affect communities of color. Dr. Corey Wiggins is the executive director of the Mississippi NAACP. Here he is with MPB's Kobe Vance discussing the hurdles returning citizens face in restoring their voting rights. You know, you have someone who who has, again, paid their to society or, or have returned to their communities. Uh, and if they um, have been, uh, if they were convicted of one of the, the 22 disenfranchising crimes, uh, then they would actually have to go through a process to either be pardoned by the governor or we have to uh, submit an individual suffrage bill that would then have to go before the uh, state legislature for them to vote on for that vote um, to be reinstated for each individual person who decided to to go in and go through that process. And so we make it extremely difficult uh, for returning citizens who are uh, favored that society, who are are participating in functioning, want to participate in democracy, to be able to do that. Now, why is it important for a somebody who would be a, a past felon to be able to vote? When you think about the strength of a democracy and the fact that folks have the ability and have the right to cast a vote for themselves to determine those who are governing to those to those 
who are going to decide where resources are being distributed across communities or folks who are going to make the decisions that impact daily lives. But those folks who are um, participating, who are, are, are doing all those things that we expect uh, good citizens or productive citizens to do and, and, and being unable to participate in democracy, I think, um, violates uh, or goes against what we should be standing as a democracy. Dr. Wiggins is the executive director of the Mississippi NAACP. Paloma Wu is an attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. She talks with MPB's Kobe Vance about the significance of the case. Taking away the right to vote automatically um, for people for life, um, you know, violates the Eighth Amendment. It's criminal and usual punishment. Mississippi is now one of only three states in the entire country that um, take away people's right to vote for life for all disenfranchising crimes. So, you know, the tide has turned, you know, times have changed. This is not something that, um, you know, this is not a punishment that is constitutional. And why would you say this case is significant for Mississippi? Mississippi tried to create a number of schemes to take the vote away from black people without using the word black, and they have been extraordinarily successful. Other states have recognized these voting bans for what they are and have taken them away, either the courts, um, you know, by the, by the courts, by legislation. Um, this is important to Mississippi because Mississippi started this, and now it ends with us. We need to finish it. We're one of only three states left that um, disenfranchises people for life um, for all disenfranchising crimes. Um, voting bans are not something that Mississippians believe in after you have completed your sentence. You know, completed your sentence, including probation and parole. We have ample ed- evidence that Mississippians do not think that that's fair, that they want their neighbors who are contributing in society. You know, they want their sons and their daughters and for impacted people. They want themselves to be able to contribute. They have a lot to offer. They have a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom, knowledge, and gifts that all the people in Mississippi have to contribute. So we were explaining to the Fifth Circuit that it's unconstitutional, and it just so happens that in Mississippi, it's actually also extremely unpopular. What we really want is for the Mississippi legislature to act to finally, you know, end and, you know, stamp out the last vestiges of the infamous Mississippi plan from the Constitution of 1890, which was successful in doing what it ought not never to have done. Paloma Wu is an attorney with the SPLC. The case was argued before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans on Tuesday on behalf of almost 30,000 Mississippians who have lost the right to vote. Coming up, Book Club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi writer Larry Brown had great fans in John Grisham, Pat Conroy, Barry Hanna, and Willie Morris. Yet Larry Brown doesn't share in the notoriety of the other authors. Perhaps it's because he died 15 years ago and his writing career was cut short. But now, thanks to Jonathan Miles, the complete stories of Larry Brown have been compiled in the book Tiny Love. Miles talked with us about his friend. When Larry Brown was 29, he was working as a firefighter for the Oxford, Mississippi Fire Department and had worked just a range of different jobs before that and on his off hours. And he started writing for what even he would later concede was sort of an absurd reason. He wanted to make some extra money. So he began teaching himself how to write. The absurdity is that fiction 
pays dividends sort of the way slot machines do. Yeah, um, I was going to say probably you know. a firefighter's pays a lot better than what a writer can hope to make. Yeah, exactly. He had never written anything before. I mean, the last piece of writing he'd ever done was his high school term paper on uh, deer hunting, which got him an F and just about derailed his graduation. So he truly started writing from scratch and wrote a novel about a man-eating bear terrorizing Yellowstone Park, wrote another novel, wrote another novel, wrote another novel, wrote hundreds of short stories and kept at it for years despite over 100 rejections. And it's one of the aspects of his life that has taken on a kind of mythology, that absolute persistence, that drive, that he kept at it. And as he started, he moved from genre work and his reading broadened. And after years, the ambition became the biggest one of all, to create art, capital A, art. And that's what he did and willed himself into the vanguard of American literature. His talent is so obvious. That has to be more than persistence. Does that mean he was born with that talent if he got an F on his deer hunting paper in high school? Is talent something that's inherent or is artistic ability something that can be taught? I think he would answer to the latter. He would say that his achievement was the hours he spent in that chair just teaching himself to write, and the way the analogy that he would use is as a bricklayer learns to lay bricks, one after the other, and keeping at it. Now, one of the things he did have before he started writing was this incredible empathy. And I think that's one of the things that you know you see so much in his writing, is that he has empathy for every one of his characters. He wanted us to see inside people, and he wanted us to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Are all of his stories rooted in Mississippi? Every one of them. That's right. And that was one of the sort of major turning points in his career. As when he started writing, he was, well, like, like any of us do, he was writing Civil War stories. He was writing Westerns. He was writing African hunting tales, just letting his imagination range as, as far as he wanted. But when he started setting his fiction in his native soil, that's really kind of when the artistic awakening happened. And you can see it in that he found in his native soil all the elements he needed, much like Faulkner did, to address every universal theme and every universal situation that there was. And he knew that terrain. He knew it better than anybody. I want to read the first two lines of Tiny Love and one line from The Apprentice, because to me, these lines indicate the writer that he was. Tiny Love starts with, Tiny was tiny, but he had a wife and he loved her. The love he had for her was a lot bigger than he was. That says a lot in those few words. And then the start of The Apprentice, this can't be living. I drink too much old Milwaukee and wake up in the morning and it tastes like old bread crusts in my mouth. <laughs> the starts of both of those stories tell you right away something about the character. Something specific about the character. Yeah, and they do it in a very lean way. I mean, his writing was was spare and lean, but the effects, as you're saying, were so lush. He conveyed so much in these very simple-looking sentences that were never simple at all. Larry Brown has some very notable fans, writer fans. Pat Conroy, John Grisham, Barry Hanna, Willie Morris... And yet, I don't think Larry Brown is top of mind when it comes to writers in Mississippi. Is that because he passed away in 2004? Yeah, I think so. One of the tragedies about his early death and you know, beyond the personal, it was a loss 
for literature for Mississippi as well. I think he was coming, you can see that in his last novel, which was published posthumously, Miracle of Catfish. You can see that he was really sort of fusing all these great elements from his years of writing, finding his speed. Now, the books he left us are incredible, and he deserves to be more widely read, more widely talked about. Jonathan Miles is an author and wrote the foreword for Tiny Love, The Complete Stories of Larry Brown. Jonathan, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Karen. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.